Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 15th, 2016, the Red Dawn edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon, we're in the same room. Yay. Hello, Emily. In Hello. Slate's New York studio of the New York Times Magazine still, yes? Indeed. Good. <laughs> Not fired yet. Not fired yet. That's uh, everyone's motto. Exactly. Uh, John Dickerson, you. You, still, you still hosting Face the Nation, John? I am. I am. You are in, are you in D.C.? Uh, Where are you? You're in D.C. I'm in D.C. I'm in this lovely studio without, uh, just all by myself. We miss you. Well, I miss you. On this week's GabFest, the Russian hacking scandal and President-elect Trump's appalling response to it. Then the selection of Rex Tillerson as the presumptive Secretary of State. What kind of Secretary of State would he be? What did the selection process tell us about Trump? Then Ta-Nehisi Coates of The Atlantic will join us to talk about his new cover story on Obama as a black president. Ta-Nehisi, always a great colleague to have on the show. That'll be fun. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And for Slate Plus, should you go to journalism school? Uh, that'll be a narrow cast topic, but it will take larger issues. So even if you're not planning to go to journalism school, you might want to listen to that. And if you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. To all the cozy bears listening in, Dasvidanya, the Russian hacking scandal exploded this week with news that the CIA has decided that government-backed hackers in Russia didn't really try to disrupt the election. They did so with a specific aim of harming Hillary Clinton and electing Donald Trump. This was based on new evidence that we'll talk about that has leaked out. Trump responded to this revelation by attacking the intelligence agency investigation, attacking the CIA. There is, uh, meanwhile, movement to get a congressional investigation, bipartisan congressional investigation of this scandal, even as the president himself speed medals to get a complete review done before he leaves office in January. This think, story has three parts. It has the what did the Russians do part. It has the what are the politics of investigating and commenting on it? Uh, and is there anything we can do about it? Uh, piece. Those are all sort of big pieces. So, Emily, um, basically, what did the Russians do according to reports? The Russians, as we know, um, hacked into the DNC and also the DCCC. John, what does that stand for? Democratic Congressional Democratic Committee. Democratic Congressional Campaign, Campaign Committee. Thank you. There was one or, more C the in there. D- Right. The D-trip, D-trip, as it is some, or just the D-trip. Okay. We knew all of this before. They hacked gazillion emails that leaked out during the campaign. What we've also learned more recently is that they hacked into the RNC, according to the CIA, and decided not to release any of what they found. So presumably there's some treasure trove of RNC communications that are um, stashed away somewhere in the cloud. And so based on this and what they called a lot of circumstantial evidence, a kind of swell of circumstantial evidence, the CIA made this conclusion that the Russians were trying to get Donald Trump elected. And then most recently, there were more leaks from the CIA saying that Putin was personally involved in all of this. So, yeah, so there we are. Giant hacks, Russian, very successful cyber warfare with as yet no response that we know of from the United States. John, there was a really interesting point made. And I can't remember where I read this, which was the, the, the line on this has been the Russians hacked the election, but they didn't hack the election. The piece I was reading said they hacked the voters. They hacked us. It yeah. wasn't that the the voting machines weren't corrupted, as far as we know. It wasn't they didn't they didn't suppress turnout by uh, propaganda campaigns telling people to vote on Wednesday instead of Tuesday. It was that they changed behavior. 
if we assume that this is true and in fact what the cia is alleging is true so let's posit that how did they manipulate us the russians have followed this pattern before which is um they create chaos and so doubt in everything so that a that's chaos and people believe what they want to believe and so they give them lots of things that they can uh people can go believe and the way they hacked the electorate or us is that a they created chaos that the press can go cover and then b for readers they created false news stories or titillating news stories well that a hurt one candidate but then also then just distracted just kept everybody on the boil and that sense of chaos both disrupts the process and then secondarily the russians can then point if the us ever wants to t- make a moral claim that that putin is rigging his own election or operating outside of international norms, he can just say, well, look at the U.S. I mean, their election was totally messed up, and they were saying all these things in private emails, so don't tell us how to behave. So it has that secondary benefit. Quickly, just one other thing that is a part of the story that um, Donald Trump's response to the CIA here by saying the response from the Trump administration was basically, or the Trump transition was, these are the guys who got the Iraq WMD wrong. That's a pretty – it's a traditional Trump response to the things that are most threatening, which is to challenge the motives and the capacity of the people making the claim. You know, remember when, when uh, former Defense Secretary Gates said something critical about Trump, Trump said, oh, well, there's something wrong with him. That's an incredible thing to do with your intelligence agencies that you're about to go work with to discredit them by talking about their worst failure in 15 years. And that has, a, has long-term implications. Usually administrations don't want to have – be in a fight with the intelligence guys because the intelligence guys are pretty good at fighting back. I just don't understand why Trump didn't realize like his, the best play is to be, to support a bipartisan investigation. He's president. He's going to be president. Like why, why no, cause that destruction? Uh-uh. Too big a blow to his ego. He's been well, insisting. That's why, yes, it's his ego thing. Right. But if you see his narcissism as driving him, there was no yes. way he could concede to this because it calls his legitimacy and his sweeping, wild, false claims of a huge landslide into total doubt. Yeah. No, it's that. that is that's all true. One of the most demoralizing things about this, Emily, as John was getting at, is the way our own institutions have been turned against us, that it wasn't simply that this information was stolen. It was stolen, released uh, through WikiLeaks, and then the American press primarily combed through it, turned it into story after story after story after story after story after story. And that became the drip, drip, drip that undermined trust in the election, undermined trust in Hillary Clinton. But it was the very strength of us, the free press, the the openness and transparency that serve to undermine us. Right. So they exploited our free press and we played right into their hands and they got what they wanted. And there's something really disconcerting about that. And, um, you know, whatever your position on Russia is apart from this, a breach like this where you're interfering with a country's election and seemingly to achieve a particular result. But even if you're going to doubt that part of it, because there's some debate between the FBI and CIA about whether they were deliberately trying to elect Trump, even if you're just concerned about the diminishing of the integrity of our process and the attempt to manipulate people, that is a huge fact, a huge thought. I'm still having trouble getting in my mind the idea that Russia essentially tried to throw our election. Did? What do you mean tried? Well, right. Okay. And did. Well, you you, could say that there are lots of other factors. Of course there are lots of other factors, but but it was a very small margin. 77,000 votes. Margin. And and there's no simply no doubt that this had this not been a story. Hillary Clinton would have one. Right. I mean, I think you well, can. There's no, I think there's no doubt too far when you say no doubt. I, no wait, doubt. No doubt. No doubt. Make that case. When it's this close, you can say that about a number of different factors. Right. Right. That's, of that's right. Yes. I, I, you're right. Yes. You're right. But doesn't, only that, but thing doesn't <laughs> that affected her right. losing. But you can oh. argue that simply because it was one of several things that it was definitive. I think that's pretty right. In the same way, Ralph Nader didn't no. cost Al Gore the 2000 election, but absent Ralph Nader, Al Gore would have won the 2000 election. 
it was one of several things which was conclusory in causing Al Gore, who ought to have won that election, to lose. I think that but isn't the response to that that the Russians didn't keep Hillary Clinton from going to Wisconsin? I mean, it's not the Russians who did that. And she lost Wisconsin. I mean, I think, of you course, could, I think of course, you make she, a very she, Yes, of course she made several mistakes. But but when you think that, that this is essentially a very small margin, that the strong right. bias was for Hillary Clinton to win, it was a very small margin. And are, were there things, obvious things that happened that suppressed Hillary Clinton's vote or or increased Donald Trump's vote that were that were independent of things that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were doing? Yeah, this was one. This massively affected how people were perceiving the election. I And I don't have any any question in my mind that this suppressed turnout enough across the country that it cost Hillary Clinton the election. So that's unbelievable so, to me. And then there are two other things that are unbelievable. Donald Trump is denying not only the fact that the Russians were trying to help him, but that it was the Russians who were doing the hack, even though the whole intelligence community seems to agree on that. And questioning, and we haven't done anything. As far as we know, there's been no response from the United States. Nothing we know of to try to deter this in the future. And I find that really terrifying. Uh, I don't follow to, you know, this was, uh, this cost Hillary Clinton the election. But I think one thing, if you are going to make that case, I think one other wrinkle to it is that it's not just that it um, suppressed votes. I mean, there are two things, obviously, two big, big, big things that happened. There was the hack and then there was there was Comey. I think what happened with with Comey, one of the just one of the things is that people who were reluctant to vote for Donald Trump were then given a fresh in the last week, a reminder of all of the drama that would be that would surround Hillary Clinton. Right. So that's not really suppression. It's kind of just. If one of the keys in this election for Republicans was taking public focus off of Donald Trump, that's what the WikiLeaks thing did. And right. that's what uh, – right. so I guess that's just another nuance if you're going to make that case, right. which I still right. don't right. think you can make as definitively as you do. Anyway. Right. And actually to, to compound that is that because there was also an email scandal involving Hillary Clinton, involving her actual real misbehavior – People conflated all the things that were coming out in WikiLeaks. I think people, if you'd asked, if you'd polled Americans, they would have a hard time distinguishing the WikiLeaks email leaks and Mm -hmm. the Hillary Clinton email leaks. It's all like there's something wrong with how Hillary Clinton is dealing with electronic communications. We're just learning about it. Look, every day there's another story about it. And some of it had to do with stupid stuff she did as Secretary of State. And some of it had to do with a hack. But it all sort of boiled into a into a noxious stew of Hillary Clinton is is handling this badly. I want to talk ask one press question about this. Did the media and obviously it's not a monolithic media, but in general, did the media do wrong by covering what was coming out in WikiLeaks? That was a sigh. It was an audible Emily Bazelon sigh, followed by a slight droop of the face. I don't know what to say about this. So narrating. There's no way the media wouldn't have covered this. That's just we don't exist in that universe. Information wants to get out there. Did the media overplay this? Was the story too much on the content of the emails versus our fears about where they were coming from? I think in retrospect, sure. But I also blame the Obama administration for not having made it clear earlier because they knew these were the Russians doing this hack. And that was not something that was definitively stated before the election with enough alarm. And in the kind of amazing piece that The New York Times did a day or two ago, this like TikTok that looked back, I felt like you could feel the frustration of, well, why wasn't this clear? And that Obama's reticence, his desire to seem nonpartisan and his assumption that Clinton was going to win the election seemed to have really infected the response within the administration in a way that now just seems like um, they were wrong. That's an interesting uh, point about because they thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, they were they didn't maybe lean into it as much as they did. But I remember talking about this a lot at the end of the election. I mean, I interviewed Biden about it. I, I, there were several. I chop up the world now in, in you know, what happens on Sundays for at least a month's worth of conversation about a month the of Sundays. Hacked emails where the, the hacked emails, where they came from, the fact that it was Russia, the fact that Donald Trump, even though he was being briefed and 17 intelligence agencies had told him the fact that he didn't know Hillary Clinton obviously brought it up in I can't remember which of it was or second or third debate. So it was talked about a lot. Now, the fact that this new piece of information that the CIA has determined that it was specifically with the intent of helping Donald Trump wasn't talked about as much. But 
But this what yeah. this was yeah. talked about. A fair I'm with amount. John. I actually, but Obama I think never a, got up there and said, "This is an attack on our nation, and we are going to respond." He didn't do well, that explicitly. I, there, but there are strong political reasons. I think he rightly saw that it would be perceived as a making a big partisan issue at a time when he shouldn't. If and they I had actually, made it clear that the RNC was also being hacked, then why isn't it a bipartisan issue? I actually think the media mistake is a totally different one than what you're identifying. To me, the media mistake is not, uh, and nor do I think I agree with John that that it was an issue. People did know it was Russian. It was came up in the debate. Trump himself talked about it. It, it the the media mistake is the total false equivalence, which is that because of the need to cover these candidates as those they are equal, it's like, well, there's a Hillary Clinton scandal here and a Donald Trump scandal. For every scandal of his, there's a scandal of hers. There has to be kind of this false balance. And the WikiLeaks created this idea of another scandal around Hillary Clinton, even though there was nothing in them. There was nothing like really substantively damaging, but it became, oh, we have to cover this. Mm. Every single day during that campaign, there was a scandal that Trump did that was 10 times worse than really anything in Hillary Clinton's past, but they were covered as though they had equal weight. And WikiLeaks gave that. And that to me is where the media screwed up was was that where the, the, the weight of coverage was, not that it was covered at all. And do you think the media would have done that no matter what? Or do you think the fact that Trump was attacking the media every day and accusing it of bias made it lean more, made it sort of relieved? Oh, good. Look, we have this Hillary Clinton scandal. Let's run with it. Well, some of both. And also there's just this deep investment in the mainstream media in particular and in the and the kind of the best journalistic institutions that we have to be fair-minded and equitable and like equitable has come equitable has come to mean like like there's balance and balance comes to mean there's as much here as there you also in a campaign have two candidates and so the traditional structure is to cover what's happening in the life of the one candidate and cover what's happening in the life of the other. When you had a front page and you wanted to play up the story that was bigger for the one candidate, it showed up in a way that sent cues to the reader that this is a more important and bigger story. But now that we all read things uh, without a lot of those cues, we read them online or we read them through social media, with the cues stripped away, it looks like there's an equivalence. Even though, I mean, if you're if you're covering a campaign, you you have people covering what both are doing. Um, so that doesn't seem to be wrong. That's what you're supposed to do. Uh, it's just the, the ways to signal to readers that one is more important than the other is have uh, been stripped away. One other thing I just want to go back. The Obama administration did come out. I just checked and it was basically a month before the election and said the Russians were yeah. Uh, yeah. the Russians were behind this. So that's a month of but and then did, Biden right. came out and said they're going to retaliate. The reason the retaliation was a little tricky is I remember from at the time is that. If you retaliate and let everybody know about it, then you get into – I mean we're actually super vulnerable to cyber attacks as a culture as a – you know, because of our reliance on the on the internet. And, and um, so this was something they had to be careful about separate and apart from the election just in terms of escalating a hot war in the cyber area. So I think there were reasons to be cautious that had that, – that were outside of the election. Right. Let's turn to that kind of question of what – as a nation, we do about uh, cyber warfare. Fred Kaplan has a great metaphor, which is that that it is true. The U.S. has stronger offensive cyber warfare capabilities than anybody else, but we live in a glassier house. It is much easier to damage us. So even though we can wreak havoc upon uh, the the North Korean uh, technology infrastructure, such as it is. Like there's much less of it to damage. It does much less harm to the country to do that than what a North Korea or a Russia or China or Pakistan could do to the United States because we just have so much more. It's so much more valuable. And therefore, we have to be very cautious before we we do things which are going to cause retaliation. So given that, how do we go to war? This is the new Cold War or a new kind of war. How do we fight this war with Russia in particular? Whatever you do, the point should be to wound Putin in a way that he cares about. So whether that's his money or his standing and reputation, there has to be something that feels to him like it has a real cost. And I understand the point about fear of escalation. On the other hand, if we don't hit back, we're just asking for more of this. And there are already seems like very legitimate concerns that Russia is going to do something similar to try to affect Germany's election. I mean, how many free and fair elections do we want to see tainted by this kind of leaking and hacking and disinformation campaign? I also want to remember something. 
why did we win the first Cold War? We won because we had a superior economic system than Russia, which we still do. And we won because we had a, a superior ideology. Democratic capitalism is the best system that the world has devised for governance and prosperity that the world has ever seen. And that depends on open institution. It depends on transparency. It depends on rule of law. It depends on free communication of peoples. It depends on strong governmental institutions at local and national level. And Russia has none of that. It is a, Russia is a crap house. It is like an extractive industry nation. It doesn't produce anything of value that isn't a natural resource and has a poisonous, hateful, authoritarian uh, ideology that is going to lose if we you know, play our cards right. And so we have to remember that as much as this war is like a, a war that we wage with the tools of cyber warfare or the tools of sanctions, it is much more a war we wage around ideology. And that means that that it's part of our obligation to prevent our institutions from being weakened, to continue to be the shining beacon of light, which which Ronald Reagan and the, and the kind of that was the the great insight that that the neocons had or they weren't neocons. then, I guess they were just cons in the 70s and 80s. And we have to remember that that and that Trump is a huge threat to it. And so we have to continue to ideologically represent the greatness and openness and prosperity that America is. And that will win us in the long run. But wait, wait, aren't you leaving out an important part of the Reaganite philosophy of the Cold War, which was to build up our arsenals and fight a bunch of proxy wars around sure. the world? No, that that was a piece of it. Okay. That was a piece of it. But we but, but we also But we also had the better story. And right now we don't have a better story. Right now we have a we have a dimming like a, light. We have a horrific, you know, celebrity authoritarian would be president and an embarrassed an embarrassed nation and a demoralized nation. Who, by the way, makes the explicit opposite case from Reagan in terms of using the story to make the case to other nations. Right, when right, asked right. About, right. When asked about what's going on in Turkey, he said, we can't tell the Turks what to do because we we, we're so messed up our own. So we have no authority to tell other countries what to, what to do, which is an amazing thing that just kind of passed by in the campaign of, of, of a million different amazing things. David, you asked about the Russians using our existing institutions and our existing way of doing things to kind of capture us. Or I guess we've we've all talked about that. So I think there's a way, another way in which Donald Trump has responded to this that is a part of what is in this mix, which is Donald Trump responded on Thursday morning by saying, if Russia or some other entity was hacking, why did the White House wait to act so long? Why did they only complain after Hillary lost? Now, the old response might have been for somebody to take that tweet and say, no, uh, the White House announced this a month before the election, a month before Hillary Clinton lost. So this story isn't coming out as a result of Hillary losing. It was out a, a month before the election. Now, that would be you would be doing your fact checking in that case. If you were to do that, I have long believed you would be doing exactly what Donald Trump would like you to do, which is essentially using the press. Uh, as a megaphone for his underlying claim, which is that the Obama administration is only talking about this after the election because Hillary Clinton lost. In the service of fact-checking his claim, you are actually promoting that underlying claim to a larger audience, which is exactly what he wants you to do. And so I wonder even now in the reporting about this story, whether the the press will respond to the new environment it finds itself in or do what we would naturally have done in the past, which was to take a claim from a politician and compare it to the facts. And what do we do instead? It's a great question. I think instead, to which I do not have an answer, um, because, <laughs> because obviously if somebody says something, I mean, our whole point here is to build meaning since the Enlightenment, is to use facts to build understanding so that we can become a, a better society. And so when a fact is an error, you want to correct it so that everybody can stick to the common meaning. That's why we all got in the business, so that people can feel like they have more control over their lives and policy can be better. This is a shot at that. So then the question is, do you essentially reassert the underlying fact just by itself in a vacuum without putting it next to the original false claim, claim that is not true, the original false claim? That seems weird because then people will be like, wait, why are you all of a sudden reminding me that, that this was talked about a month before the election ended? So I don't know what the solution is, but we do know based on just lots and lots of evidence of this, that um, that this is a strategy and a tactic of Donald Trump's. Other White Houses have had strategies and tactics that have been pretty similar to the ones before it. This is a new strategy and tra a tactic 
Major Garrett of CBS wrote about the White House, the Obama White House using this, what they call the stray um, voltage theory, which is basically get in a fight about statistics. Even if you know the one you're using is not really on the level, it's fine because you want the fight because the fight is happening on your turf. So that was a, a smaller version of this. This is, I mean, Donald Trump has made it a more professional and consistent and constant thing to um, say things that, and not really worry about the veracity knowing, in the hopes that we will all in the mainstream media carry along his untrue original claim. This episode of The GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Rex Tillerson, the CEO of ExxonMobil, has never worked anywhere but at the oil giant. He will soon be Secretary of State if the Senate confirms. Under Tillerson, ExxonMobil has become one of the most successful companies in the history of the world. It is the most dominant oil producer. It strikes deals all across the globe with governments that are both corrupt and legitimate. It is incredibly smart, ruthless, methodical brilliantly run the book that Steve Call wrote about ExxonMobil, which I think we interviewed. I think we interviewed Steve. We did. Steve came on and talked about it on the GabFest. It paints a portrait of a company that is a, that is a fascinating company that is built around science and intelligence and the ruthless maximization of, of profit and is a, is a very, very, very smart, orderly company. Tillerson is himself a Boy Scout. He he was president of the Boy Scouts. He was an Eagle Scout. He cares a great deal about scouting. He is a Christian. He's a lover of Ayn Rand. He's an engineer. And he has done an incredible, irresistible job of advancing his company's interests. He has also been awarded the Order of Friendship by Vladimir Putin, a Russian award to celebrate his efforts to open parts of the Russian Arctic to lots of oil exploration. What is the case, John, that he is a He's a smart, wise choice for our Secretary of State. I'll give you the Trump case and then the the outside the Trump circle case. The Trump case is essentially what he said during the campaign. I'm going to hire people who are great negotiators to deal with these various countries all over the world. And so in that sense, Tillerson, who was a, a late to the Trump party, in other words, wasn't a booster during the campaign or a loyalist, appealed to his idea of a big, powerful kind of guy like him who operates in a very, very different kind of business, but who was nevertheless big and powerful and does a lot of deals. I think also there were hurdles for, for Mitt Romney, who I, all the reporting suggests it, this was a real, don't listen to what Roger Stone says, that this was just to make fun of Romney, I, it, that I think there was a real effort to try and get Romney to be Secretary of State. And we can talk about that later if you want. Um, the outside, why does Connie Rice and Bob Gates and... And James Baker think that Tillerson is uh, is a good pick. Well, uh, a snarky answer is because Gates and, and Condi Rice uh, consult with Exxon. But I think the the other answer is they believe that he understands the the world. He's had a lot of exposure to it and understands the that things are complex in the world and in world relationships, that it's not all black and white and that you sometimes have to manage relationships. One view of Tillerson is his relationship with getting the uh, order of freedom or medal of freedom or um, hat of uh, sagaciousness from Russia or whatever it was, is uh, means he's in the pocket of Russia. The other view is it means he understands and knows how to work and deal with Putin and that you're never going to make Putin submit. You're going to manage him. 
And um, better to have somebody who has some experience in that than somebody who just throws a lot of rhetoric and then fails. And also, by the way, look at the last two attempts to deal with Putin. They haven't really worked, either in the Obama administration or the Bush administration. So have somebody in there who might have some, you know, world experience, some toughness, has been in some high stakes uh, moments, and who has enough ballast to push back perhaps against uh, President Trump. And it's also another point I'd make in his favor. He's an engineer. Engineers are tough. They're uh, they're difficult to deal with. There's a lot of problems. There's a rigidity uh, of mind that engineers tend to have. But they're analytical. Kind of analytical rigor is something that seems to be in woefully short supply in the Trump administration so far. So I'm glad to have some of that. He is not, Tillerson is not a sort of seat of the pants, do what you feel kind of person that will probably serve us. Emily, what's the strong case against? I think there's a question about whether if you've worked for ExxonMobil, this huge oil and gas extractive industry company or whole career, whether you can shift focus and think about the national interest in a broader way that doesn't begin with corporate interests and a kind of private industry way of thinking about winners and losers and gains and benefits. I mean, I really question that. And let's also not forget that ExxonMobil, while it has recently acknowledged that climate change is a real thing for a long time, spent a lot of time and energy muffling the message that climate change was happening or that, you know, carbon dioxide emissions had anything to do with it. The second Although, wait, just to interrupt, that <laughs> yeah. is a sick, hilarious irony that Tillerson is likely the most pro uh, science and pro climate change person in this administration so right. far. Well, he's the, he's the only Scott one who actually Pruitt. believes it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, he probably doesn't think we should um, just turn the whole EPA over to industry. The second issue is this question about Russia. I feel like if he was coming into a different administration that was seemed likely to take a tough, skeptical line on Putin and Russia, then the fact that he had these ties would seem like an asset. But instead, he's coming into a situation where Donald Trump seems ready to rush into Putin's arms, wholly untroubled by Putin's strongman tactics, and, as we were just discussing, unwilling to believe that Putin just messed around and scrambled the eggs of our election. And so then you start worrying. I mean, I've been kind of obsessed with the story that after um, the United States imposed sanctions on Russia, after Russia annexed Crimea, ExxonMobil was drilling in the Kara Sea and they were working on this big rig. ExxonMobil told our government that Russia was going to seize the rig and finish the drilling itself unless it was allowed to continue this project, which the sanctions that the United States had put into place had disallowed. And so the American government capitulated. Exxon finished this project and discovered a major field with 750 million barrels of new oil, all of which like ExxonMobil would help develop if we lifted these sanctions on Russia. It's just going to be really hard as again, as we see with aspects of um, Donald Trump's business interest to really hard to disentangle the self-dealing kind of corporate interests here from national security and national interests. I don't know how we're supposed to judge that. Another piece of this, John, which maybe you have some insight on, this is not at all clear to me if there is a foreign policy philosophy that undergirds mm-hmm. what Trump is doing or not. There's been this talk of John Bolton, the talk that is now rapidly diminishing, I hope. John Bolton is the deputy secretary of state. John Bolton is the most neocon of the neocons. He would like to, if there's a country, he wants to invade it. He, he'd be happily be bombing Iran right now, probably, and is a huge Russia hawk and a, just a general kind of protagonist for muscular pushing of American interests militarily across the world. And he was the person who's being put forth as as the deputy secretary of state. And then there's Tillerson, who represents kind of a deal making, but doesn't particularly have any ideology. Trump himself sometimes is a very much a kind of nativist uh, or, you know, withdraw isolationist, withdraw from the world person. At other times, he's talking about deals. At other times, he's he's aligning himself with generals who are pretty bellicose and so do you, have you been able to discern in your reporting and your kind of interviewing people, is there some MO that Tillerson will be tasked with carrying forth or is it pretty random? First, if I can make a small diversion, um, I want to write the novel in which the 1950s plucky reporter's name is pretty bellicose. Anyway, there's not a, a unifying worldview other than strong American military, um, big buildup of American forces frightens people from being adventuresome. 
that the U.S. will be more isolationist than we've been in the past. So, for example, Aleppo and more the moral pull on the U.S. to take action in areas where there's slaughtering, I think, is, you know, Obama was reluctant to do that. So if you imagine that Barack Obama had, I mean, he did have Samantha Powers as his ambassador to the UN who wrote about genocide. So at least he had that person on his staff and yet he wasn't, you know, he only did very little in Syria. The actions in Libya more reflected the Samantha Powers um, view of interceding. Right. That's right. And that's and that's the great lesson for him, which was that was a huge disaster and and he shouldn't do it again. So I guess my point is just if you think Obama had these inclinations and then learned from experience that you really can't do all the things you would like to do. I don't even think Donald Trump has those underlying inclinations. I mean, he can say Aleppo's a mess, but it doesn't, I don't think, pull at his heartstrings in a way that would lead to U.S. action. Nor do I think he believes, as Reagan and George W. Bush did, and obviously George Herbert Walker Bush believed, that you need strength in certain areas to and need to take certain risks in U.S. foreign policy to keep the next Aleppo from happening. And so one is don't do anything once the bombing starts. The other is don't do anything if you think bombing might start through instability. So I think those are the two the two big things. And then I think the third thing is uh, ISIS is an existential threat and we need to do everything possible to kill the terrorists in ISIS and Al-Qaeda. That has nothing to do with the other pieces. That's what's so crazy is honestly, what does that have to do with the other pieces? It has nothing to do with it. It's so weird. I mean, because you're you asking me to. Yeah. No, no, I'm not asking I, you to yeah. defend that. It's just it's it is a it's like I love, you know, kittens and and I love bunny rabbits. And also I love coal. Like it has nothing to do with it. It doesn't. It's just a non sequitur. I think you just failed the old analogy test on the SAT. <laughs> well, no, that's what I'm saying is that they are I failing know, the analogy I know, test. I know. But so, John, but the description of you just provided suggests that it's sort of like we'll have a foreign policy, which is we're not going to be interfering in with the the affairs of, of local dictators. We're not going to be doing a lot of waving our hands for freedom wherever there is freedom arising, that our relationships are going to be concerned with sort of maintaining decent economic relationships with strong nations, no matter who's running them, um, and that yeah. that's, that's what we care about. Right. I guess one other thing I would put in this emerging, you know, if you wanted to put the worldview on an index card, I think a coral, is it a corollary or a, just a second part to this, don't be adventuresome for the sake of your high-minded principles I think Donald Trump believes that the Iraq war was the single greatest blunder. I mean, yeah. he doesn't believe this. He said it out loud. It was the single greatest blunder in American history. And so I think that shapes his, I think that shapes his worldview too. Yeah. Well, he's not wrong about that in some ways. I want to close with two small points on this. One, Emily, just pushing for you to become secretary of agriculture. Me. If, yes, because if you look at the line of succession, ah, that every single person in the line of succession is a white dude. Until you get to Ben Carson. I think he's comes right before um, Elaine Shaw. I think it's the first 13 people are uh, white dudes. Yes, that's right. Exactly. The Secretary of Agriculture. All right. Could, I'll raise my hand for that job. I'd be excellent. You're, you're, garden, oh, yeah, you're a gardener. I'd be great. I'm really not a gardener. Um, Wait. <laughs> so the line of succession has 17 people in it. So is it all... It's all secretaries, right? Is that right? It is goes the, through the it, Speaker through, of the House. Everybody in the cabinet. And the, and the yes. President Pro Tem. And then the, Speaker of the House and the Pro Tem. No, okay. No, yeah, no. Right. I think yeah. Speaker and Pro, President Pro Tem come before yeah, the they members become, of the yes. cabinet. And then it's, yes, yes, and yes, then yes, it's yes, the yes, yes. members no, of the cabinet based on when that department was founded, which is why Carson and Right. And, and and that's why Homeland Security is last. Right. So I'm sorry. I was I was just trying to figure out when the list runs out. How many people is it before they just have to turn to like the well, there, the there is this kitchen, new, like. there's this new TV show called Designated Survivor. That's Kiefer Sutherland stars yeah. as the sort of very is the an academic who's accidentally ended up as secretary of HUD. And then he accidentally ends up as president when everyone is killed in a bombing of the Capitol during the State of right. the Union. That would uh, be the 12th person in the line of succession, just so you know. Yeah. OK. Last point on this, Emily, which is. From your position of Secretary of Agriculture, you can make a judgment about this. The people that Trump has appointed so far, Trump is himself in real estate. The people he's appointed so far are generally in extractive industries. His energy secretary, Rick Perry, comes from Texas, an extractive industry state. Scott Pruitt at the EPA is somebody who is a strong ally of extractive industries. Wilbur Ross at Commerce is a... Um, coal executive, a coal magnet, among other things. The thing about extractive industries, extractive industries are one 
and real estate are similar, which is that they are not actually about creation. They are zero sum. They're about like getting there first and getting a taking piece of something stuff. and taking stuff. And it is really not the model for what economies should be. If you look across the globe, countries which depend on extractive industries, Russia, a one example, are countries which which are corrupt and uh, get poorer over time. They do, they waste they waste yep. Actually, that's one of the things that disturbs me most about Trump is that his vision for what the economy is is based on real estate and now apparently extractive industries. It's a mercantilist vision, and uh, I'm worried about it. I was talking to a member of Congress who was uh, making a version of that same case, which is basically th- that Paul Ryan has a different view and. Leaving aside whether you agree with Paul Ryan's view or not, but it is a different like salesmen and real estate guys have the same sort of worldview. This person was saying that is different from the worldview of most other conservatives and particularly the ones who are running the committees in Republicans in Congress. And so it'll be interesting to see whether they just allied those differences and it never comes up or where and when that might actually intersect as they try to straighten themselves out. And what's the Paul Ryan worldview that contrasts with the real estate deal-making oil and gas folks? That's a good question. I'll I'll, I'll say what I think it is, which is that it's built much more around industry and hard work and human capital, that it's, it's kind of intelligence and hard work that gets you the thing, not your ability to sell or your ability to get access to a resource. That that is the right wor- worldview, and, and where I think the rubber meets the road, no, where the two worldviews clash is around things like education, like how you fund education, what the purpose of education is. Like if you're somebody who believes that economic growth fundamentally comes from the intellectual vitality of a nation, then you pursue one set of goals, and if you believe no, it comes from the kind of exploitation of natural resources, you pursue an entirely different set of goals, and that those I think are going to be in conflict well said i the other thing the thing that was like like this huge massive thing in front of my face that i couldn't answer the question was where the two sides clash is on specifically on the question of debt so donald trump loves debt thinks debt's great paul ryan is obsessed with trying to shrink debt and doing politically unpopular things to address the debt and deficit and i don't think donald trump really cares about that stuff but I was having trouble fitting that back into the original worldview question debate that we were having. So that's why I was. But I think David's explanation is pretty good. You're allowed to take five seconds to think of the answer to a question. <laughs> that's a totally acceptable amount of time. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ta-Nehisi Coates is the national correspondent for The Atlantic. He has a cover story in the magazine this month. My president was black. It's a long reported essay based on reporting and conversations he had with the president over many months about Obama as a black president. Welcome back to the GabFest, Tanahasi. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Is this an essay? Did you you feel like it's an essay? I said reported essay. Yeah, so yeah, I, was, yeah, yeah. I was like I was like covering I was covering right. my bases. Right. But you feel like it, that's how it strikes you like as a reported essay. Well, it has essayistic elements because you're in it and there's a lot of your thinking in it. But I mean, I think it's like a reported magazine piece as well. Essay is the word that people use when it's like it's thoughtful. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, this is not a tweet. Really. Right. Yes. You know. It's like it's, everything it's, that's not a tweet is, is an essay. It's a, a I'm thousand saying, tweets. I'm not saying it's not an essay either. I'm just always interested in how people like see things you know what i mean like how it strikes you know uh in this era where like we all we have is this vague word long form you know i didn't say that you didn't say that you didn't say that (laughs) i like the word long form i think it's helpful i do not like the word long form it makes me feel like i'm doing my taxes yeah uh (laughs) all right let's get let's get to the actual piece itself um so what does the headline mean what i wanted to do is um there was this song Jay-Z and Young Jeezy were doing this uh, song, My President is Black, uh, on inauguration night. And if you watch the video, you can feel all the joy you know, in the room. And I wanted to do something a, a little bit more mournful. So we turned to is. I thought I had this idea to turn to is into a was. Because I, I wanted that the, uh, 
the essay, as you say, to have like a kind of elegiac quality to it. Like I wanted it to be sort of mournful. Like even before Trump won, uh, I think a lot of people in the African-American community, like a year out, people started getting sad. You know, like it was almost over. And I was trying to capture that, that sadness in the piece. One of the lines that really struck me, this idea of yours, for eight years, Barack Obama walked on ice and never fell. It's true. I mean, in terms of how clean and not scandal ridden the administration was and the high standards of behavior the president has set. So you in emphasizing how exceptional he is, you really trace that to his upbringing and the way in which it, too, is exceptional. Um, What do you see in that as being the most important for explaining Obama? Well, you know, I think there's two different things. Like, I think um, his upbringing really gave him the ability to speak. And, you know, this is argument. Like, this might prove to not be true. It's just my theory. <laughs> um, <laughs> like you know so I mean? many things. Yeah, it's just my theory. Like, maybe maybe this is true. Maybe it's not. But the way in which the president addressed white audience, I, I always thought was different. I just had not seen other African-Americans do it. I had seen, Now, I'm, I'm very familiar with African-American politicians or business people or whatever trying to ingratiate themselves to white people. Like I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with that. I'm, a, I'm familiar with shuffling for white people. I'm, I'm familiar for like flat with flattery, but I, I, I thought he was doing something more. I mean, it was flattery in the sense that, you know, any sort of politician has to flatter, you know, the people that, that whose votes he's trying to get, but it didn't feel, um, I don't know. It felt genuine. Like, like it actually felt genuine, which was something I, I had never seen. And so when I, began actually going back to read Dreams of My Father. And then when I talked to him about it, it, it accorded, I felt, with much of his biography and, and, and particularly the idea of being born at a point where in whole swaths of the country, marriage between his mother and his father was illegal, where his very conception you know, was taboo. And yet he was born far from those places, was raised without the kind of direct traumas that you associate with African-American identity usually. And I thought that probably has some effects. Talk about that phrase that you use throughout the piece, his belief in white innocence. Yeah. what That's what you're getting at here. Like, how, how is it that he addresses us? I mean, dresses me and John oh, man. Emily he, he sees the, and appeals to that. He sees the best in white people, like like the best. I mean, and I think probably as a politician, you have to see the best in like all voters. I don't know. I don't know. It's like when I was a child, this is just how I was raised. You know, when folks use the term white people or, you know, more commonly, the white man or white folks, it was usually to explain something negative about their life. You know, it usually was tinged with some sort of pain or something like that. And, you know, he has some of that, you know what I mean? Some things that happened to him. But but for him, like when he talks about it, it feels much more like individual elements. I, I can, here's the best way I can relate to this, okay? Throughout my entire childhood, my entire childhood, I was never in my life called a nigger by a white person. That that never actually happened to me. It finally happened to me about two years ago, actually when I was in France, <laughs> right? Crazy enough. <laughs> so That's much, what you went so to much France for. Your thesis. for. Right. All right. right, right. So, but you know, like it, it literally had no emotional effect on me. Like I recognized that it was, a, it, was a, it was a white person who was doing it. I recognized that they were trying to insult me because of my race, but it had no effect because I had, that, that wasn't the kind of wounds I had. Do, do you understand? Like, it didn't call back to anything that had happened to me as a child at all. So I recognize it as ignorance. But that was about it. You know what I mean? Like, it didn't affect how I saw, you know, the other people around me. I didn't feel like, oh, my God, man, I got to be really careful walking through Paris. Like, it didn't really have that sort of effect. Now, had that been, like, you know, something that was constant in my life, had I, you know, frankly, been a black French person, experienced that, you know, over a course, I probably would have felt a little different. I mean, one of the things that was really moving to me about your piece was the description of Obama's white grandparents, you know, who he channels. They helped raise him. He was treated with love and decency by white people as a child growing up in a way that you really highlight and that contrasts so much with the way in which his parents' relationship would have been condemned in much of the country in the 60s when he was growing up. So that, I think, fun of following your thesis along, has left him with this very optimistic view of white people, which was his great strength as a president and also maybe his weakness. Um, And one of the things that's so striking about reading this piece now is his dismissal of the notion that in this moment in American history, a person like Donald Trump could win. 
And then Donald Trump does win, and you go back to the president one more time, and he's still he says, dismissive. "He's dismissive of something. Yeah. He's dismissive of the consequences of it." Yeah. Right. He says something about the long-term trends of the United States, and it doesn't go on a smooth, direct line. Sometimes it zigs and zags. Did you believe him at that moment? I have to feel wow. say, like, as much <laughs> as I, I just don't believe that he really. I don't know. What do you think? I think what I can say is I wasn't convinced by him. <laughs> I mean, because there are two things going on, right? Like, I think he genuinely is an optimistic person. And I think in the role that he occupies, he probably feels like it does no good to say, you know, the, you know, the house is falling, yes. the roof is, you know, like it probably does no good to do that. So how much of that is him and how much of that is, you know, him, you know, performing for the office? I don't know. All I can say is I was completely unconvinced by it. The tough thing to reconcile was only weeks earlier, he was saying he was pitching Donald Trump as an existential threat. And then he was saying, you know what, I, I, you know, basically, I think it'll be OK. You know, obviously, it's not what I wanted to happen, but I think it'll be OK. One of those two things is not true. Like, they both can't be true at the same time. And so I guess I'm talking myself in, in, into, into what you were saying right now. No, I don't believe him. I don't. I don't. Do, do you think do you think he has that position because he has to represent he has to recognize or admit or come to terms with all the limitations he saw in his own presidency from the the, the way he envisioned it on day one right. and the, what he sees it now. I'm right. reminded of that, of his uh, interview with Remnick, where he said, you know, you, you don't get to write, you write sentences, not whole chapters. Right. And you just want to, or maybe he said paragraph, right. you just want to get your paragraph right. So if he thinks it's, if he thinks there are all these constraints on the presidency, maybe that's what he thinks about this new, those constraints will act on the well, new in, in which case, everything he was saying before about it, you know, being an existential threat was the lie, <laughs> you know, uh, right. but I guess the problem I have with that is that was a, a pretty broad Democrat and to some extent, you know, when you talk about Republican establishment, a lot of people really felt that way. And feel. And feel and feel and feel. Except now, you know, some of those people who are in politics are saying, no, 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 it's not so bad. So I I don't know. I, I, I don't know. John, I think you make a good point. And maybe it's a case of, you know, once it happens, you know, you say, well, here's the, you know, the bright side of it. Maybe so, you know what I mean? Maybe it's a perspective yeah. thing. But um I, I don't know. I, I struggle to reconcile those two things. ta some of the most uh, vivid and warm writing in this is writing about being a black person at celebrations that the Obamas are having, which are largely uh, for, I mean, that the audiences are largely African-American, that it's music and culture of African-Americans. Talk a little bit about the experience of going to those events and as a black person, what they meant to you and what what you'll feel like to miss it. Because I don't think Donald Trump, I don't think Donald Trump is going to do quite the same yeah, events. probably not. Um, you know, I remember one time, and this is only briefly alluded to in the piece. God, this was, it, was, it wasn't even that long ago. We were talking about a month, month and a half ago. We were in Orlando, and he was giving a campaign speech for Hillary, and he came out. And, you know, in the, in the intro, it's about him, you know, dancing and everything. But there was like a, a thing, like a tarp over top, so you couldn't see the president before he, he came out. Except there was an area you could peek through. And there were a number, it was a mixed crowd, but it was a lot of African-Americans in the, in the crowd. And I could just remember the joy, you know, of the folks looking down and how they felt and the sort of ecstasy. And, and I just have never, it, it's not, it's not like seeing a celebrity. It's not the same thing. You know, I mean, if you look at the cover image and you see how we're focused on those, those two black girls, like, like the, the joy in their faces. And then when I went back to Howard, I mean, that was incredible. I mean, I was I had never seen anything, you know, like that. I mean, you know, just the way they greeted them. They played a national anthem and then they played black national anthem and everybody raises their fist, you know, in that sort of black power salute. And it was amazing to see that done you know, for a black president. Like it was just like a totally different context. And then the concert that that, you know, we open up with. I mean, that. And so one of the struggles I had was you can be very, very dismissive of all of that. And say it's just feeling, you, you know what I mean? Like it's just symbolism. It doesn't actually mean anything. But in some way, I feel like you're then dismissive of the people and how they're reacting. You know what I mean? And so you have to, you know, attribute something to that. You have to say that there's, you know, you have to spend some time with that. You know, because I think there's a way of looking at the president and, you know, you only think about policy. You know, and you can have that argument, but I think like he matters as a cultural figure, you know, to the country at large, it matters in a particular way to, to uh, African-Americans. Tanahasi, one thing I've been struck by in the last couple of months as I just wander past newsstands is there's 
there's been an extraordinary number of big articles, big magazine cover stories about Michelle Obama yeah. or about them as a couple that even more, there's been even more reminiscence. I somehow feel maybe it's because there are a lot of women's magazines that want to put her on the cover, but even more about her and her effect than him. Why do you think that Michelle and Michelle's departure has excited so much interest and nostalgia and enthusiasm and sorrow all at once? I strongly suspect it has a lot to do with the fact that Michelle Obama has not been called upon, that she was not called upon to speak when Henry Louis Gates happened, when the arrest happened, when Ferguson happened. I strongly suspect because they only know Michelle Obama in a certain way. And I'm not saying I know what Michelle Obama would say, but I think uh, it, it actually is the flip side of how people loved Laura Bush, right? Like liberals had this sort of thing with Laura Bush because, you know, like they had to deal with George Bush and in their imagination, Laura Bush was mild or, or somewhat different. I think, you know, and perhaps intelligently, you know, folks have kept Michelle Obama away from that sort of thing. and She's kept herself away from that sort of thing. I'm not saying she should have talked or anything like that, um, but I don't know. I don't know. It's hard for me to like view that necessarily like as a, as a positive development. I think it, a lot of it has to do with, you know, how she comported herself and how she had to, and I'm, you know, obviously, you know, a gifted, gifted first lady, deeply, you know, personable when, you know, she did put herself out there, you know, during, during the uh, political campaign and made some just tremendous speeches, but it probably has a lot to do with having not been asked or having not had to answer for one of the most important qualities at his White House over the past eight years. And that's the fact that they were black, you know? Ta-Nehisi Coates's cover story in The New Atlantic is My President Was Black. You should read it. And you should also watch him on Face the Nation this Sunday. He's going to be sitting down with John. So you'll John get even get more, all the questions even then. more good stuff. <laughs> get to ask all the questions I held back. <laughs> Great to have Always you. Always a pleasure. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're uh, having a beer with the president and the first lady, as I hope uh, you will be, what will you chatter to them about, Emily Bazelon? All right. I have three really fast chatters this week. The first one is uh, my friend James Sturm just finished an amazing series of cartoons in Slate called Off Season desolate, wonderful. If you missed it, go check it out. And my sister, Dana Bazelon, who is a defense lawyer, wrote a piece in Vox about these new rules that the Bureau of Prison have put in place that are making it impossible for her clients to have visitors who are not immediate family. And since they're often not married to the mothers of their children, this means that they lose contact with their kids and with their partners in a way that just seems cruel and unnecessary. So Jesus, that's so it's really stupid. awful. It's just so at odds with how people actually live their lives. So go check that out. And then there was an amazing series in the New York Times this week that I'm afraid may get buried in all the news. It's about prosecutors and the power they have over diversion programs. Plus right? one to that. Craziness. Um, it's written by Shayla Dewan and Andrew Laren. And if you didn't read it, you really should go check it out just to understand the way in which these programs, which are supposed to help people not have criminal records, not go to jail, become these kinds of personal, like, banks for prosecutors and just subject to a great deal of abuse. It was really amazing reporting around the country. Yeah, that's a great series. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? Uh, well, it, uh, since we're expanding the chatter, I'm going to do two quickly. One is... We're we all talked, cheating uh, I'm doing week. seven. I'm going to yeah. do seven. <laughs> I know. Holiday bonus. Okay, so... Uh, at some well, one of our shows after the election was it before the election? I can't remember. I was making the case for watching things in the states. We've got so much to keep the eye on the ball on in Washington now, given uh, all the massive changes that are going to happen. But still, in North Carolina, the Republican Party is moving to curb the power of the new Democratic governor. This is itself its own interesting story. A in terms of the way in which the Republican-controlled legislature is trying to 
basically tie the hands of the new Democratic governor. It's interesting in its own terms. It's interesting in the history of North Carolina over the last, you know, 10, 12 years and its politics. But then more broadly, it to me is really interesting in terms of shifting norms, shifting constant campaigning, a level of partisanship that isn't just about rhetoric, but that but is about actual changes to laws. And so it's just keep the eye on the on the ball and what's shocking. happening in North Carolina. It is shocking. I'm so glad you brought that yeah. up. And one of the things that they're doing is changing the way the state election boards are composed to take away the governor's power. And that, of course, is going to be a super important um, determining feature of the fairness of elections going forward. Wait, but there's a more hilarious piece of it. The, the, the even an odd years. Yeah, so they so they're like <laughs> we're going to alternate control the state election board. There'll be an even number of Democrats and Republicans on it. Alternate uh, chairman. Uh, so in, in even years, it'll be just the way we're just just happens that in even years the Republicans will chair and odd years Democrats will chair. Even years are the only years there are elections. So it's it's yes. Ridiculous. Anyway, continue. Your second chatter, John. My second chatter is is a piece that was written by Michael Gerson in the Washington Post last week, offering three texts that Donald Trump should read. The first was Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. The second was Franklin Roosevelt's Four Freedoms speech to Congress in 1941. And then the final one was George Washington's letter to uh, the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island. Each one of the texts, and I, I encourage you to just go read Gerson's piece for why he picks the, the three. But I thought it was a, it was a clever way of making a case basically to, to about the current moment we're in, which is about standards and norms and what's what is the underlying not uh, we know what the structure of our government is there are the questions and and um, challenges to the constitution where these norms come from these are three texts that um, remind us of who we are as a country and it's also an interesting parlor game just like as Gerson says you know the funny people will say well the first thing you should read is the constitution which is what people answered when I uh, did a piece for Slate many years ago about what Obama's reading list should be for the summer there were lots of people who answered with the constitution so this is a bipartisan response so I recommend that piece to you I was thinking when you said three texts that it's more likely that Trump would read three texts that were sent to him like like, (laughs) it's time for dinner or that was a great speech I think he can get through anything much longer than that but I could be wrong My chatter is about a fantastic philosophical problem I learned about, actually, in Atlas Obscura. Sorry, I didn't want a log roll for Atlas Obscura, but I happened to learn about it in Atlas Obscura. My colleague Kara Jama wrote a story about the incompatible food triad. What is the incompatible food triad, you ask? It was first pondered by a Stanford philosopher known as Wilfred Sellers. And the problem is... Can you think of any set of three foods, each of which is great as a pair, but which collectively all three, if you combine them all together, would be gross? So if you think about if A and B are good together and B and C are good together and A and C are good together, then are A, B and C together always good? So the question is, does such a triad exist? Hmm. You mean where there where there's where there's good or if they are always it's always the case that if A and B are good, B and C are good, A and C are good, that uh, the triad is always good. Can you find an example? Like chocolate and peanut butter and banana or chocolate and peanut butter and mint. Oh, but peanut butter and mint don't Don't go together. together. Right. Yeah. Um, Gin, olives and pimentos. Olives and pimentos. I don't like olives or pimentos. Wait, wait, do olives and pimentos go? Olives and pimentos go together. Of course. Yeah. And gin, gin, pimentos, and gin go together. No, but they all and go together. Olives. What are you talking about? But they all three to go go together fine. Right. So isn't that the challenge? No, no. The challenge you is have to, to find have ones where they don't go together fine. Where they where each go together well. Where A, B, and C well. don't go together fine. Yeah. So the best example that's oh, been come up with is, oh, okay. is, is, I like this game. is a shot of tequila, a shot of tequila, and a shot of tequila. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a a genius solution, but it's a great it's a great problem which has not yet been solved. So anyway, see if anyone can solve it. Apparently, the the main guy who's who's arguing this now, uh, I think his name Belknap, um, has said, "If you find a solution, please don't send it to me because uh, he's sick of hearing people's solutions." But if you can think of a solution to the incompatible food triad, tweet it to us. Our interns, Kevin Townsend, our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is chief content officer for Panoply. GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email, email address is GabFest at Slate.com. 
please subscribe to the show in iTunes. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Talk to you next week for a pre-Christmas show. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.